So this evening as we were practicing as one big massive choir with the new song, uh, apparently my Apple Watch thought I was working out because it kind of began to tap me and said, would you like to record this workout? And I was like, they actually have an app that's going to let me know when I'm worshiping. That is fantastic. So um, anyway, uh, this evening I am going to start with a little bit of a clip. It's a part of an article that was actually found in Extreme Tech Magazine, uh, I guess back January the 26th of 2014. The title of that article was Stephen Hawking's New Research, There Are No Black Holes. Here's a little clip for you. The article says, and I quote, Exactly 40 years after famed theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking brought event horizons and black holes into the public eye, he is now claiming that black holes don't actually exist. Now, to be clear, Hawking isn't proposing that black holes don't exist, just that black holes, as we have understood them for the last 40 years or so, thanks to the work done by Stephen Hawking and others, those don't exist. End of quote. What a letdown. I mean, people go to bed on January the 25th. They are full of wonder and awe at the fact that black holes are out there in the universe. They wake up on the 26th, and it's gone. Reminds you of that whole Pluto not being a planet business that we went through a number of years ago. Now, how could one of the smartest minds that the world has ever seen, how could the guy who pioneered much of the research in the area of black holes, how could the guy who wrote the textbooks, the one who's been lecturing on the topic for 40 years, how could that guy be wrong? Here's the answer. The evidence didn't add up. Now, every day we process mounds of evidence, not usually on the level of black holes and issues going back to the origins debate, but we process mounds of information in search of truth. And it could be something nominal. It could be something that is just around the house. For example, you walk into your house and there's an empty cookie jar. And then there is a number of crumbs from the kitchen going to your child's bedroom. And you walk into your child's bedroom and your child is sitting there with a guilty look on their face and cookie crumbs around their mouth and an unusual desire not to have dessert tonight. Now, you don't have to call in Metro to find out what just happened. All you have to do is follow the evidence, and you're going to arrive at the truth. We always are in search of truth, and we are looking at mounds and mounds of evidence in every different area. Well, this last week, when we left off in our study of the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul had made this incredible claim. He claimed to have received divine revelation from Jesus himself. Now, that is a massive claim. But it's also a claim that many others have also made over the years. People like Jim Jones or Mary Baker Eddy or Joseph Smith, they've all claimed that they received divine revelation. So why would we believe the Apostle Paul and maybe not believe somebody else? Well, it comes back to an issue of evidence. Where does the evidence lead? Is there enough supporting information? Are there enough clues that you could work through the process and say, I have a level of confidence that what this individual is saying is correct? 
So in this situation, we are now going to look at the evidence that he has presented through the rest of this particular chapter. Last week I shared, it's going to be a lot of evidence, a lot of it comes out of his personal life. So we're only going to begin the section tonight, and I'm going to give you three very specific pieces. They're clues, they are parts of evidence that when taken together help substantiate the claims that he has made. So I invite you, if you would, go with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter number 1. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 13 through 24, and I'm speaking this evening on the subject of evidence from a changed life. Now, this is kind of going to be part one. We're going to finish out the section in a couple of weeks, but I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight. I want us to just go ahead and start in prayer, and what's going to happen is as we begin to work our way through that particular section, I'm going to give a point, and I'm going to read the corresponding text that goes along with that. So let's go ahead and go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening as we do Sunday after Sunday that your spirit will guide us into truth. And God, we're asking for the same thing tonight. We're praying, Lord, that as we get into the word, that you would give us unbelievable clarity as to how we can process through the claims of Scripture. Not mentally checking out, but engaging the mind that you gave us so that it is leading us into truth. We'll be grateful for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse number 13 and then continuing through the rest of the chapter, the Apostle Paul begins to share his story. And he kind of shares his story in three main parts, and that is he tells you a little bit about his life prior to Christ, then he tells you a little bit about what happened when he met Christ, and then he finishes by giving you some of the information of things that have happened in his life since Christ. Now, there is no question that something major took place in the Apostle Paul's life. Uh, we know that because the persecutor of the church became the preacher of the gospel overnight. And when people change that much, that fast, there's only a handful of options as to what would bring about that level of change. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but just some to kind of get your mind going as to why somebody would go from one extreme to the other. Now, here's some possibilities. Maybe medical problems could explain a major shift. And what I mean by that is maybe he had a nervous breakdown. Maybe he had a chemical imbalance. Maybe he had some other medical condition, a, a brain tumor, something else that would have changed his personality from him being the guy persecuting believers to all of a sudden becoming a believer. Like that is a massive change in a person's life. But if that were the case, then you could probably tell it because it would be noted and it would also be noticed by others who are around them. This is a guy who was a lightning rod for attention. Everywhere he went, there was attention that was coming towards him. Also, if there were a medical problem, you would probably begin to pick it up on some of his future writings as well, that something wasn't quite right. And yet that's not the case for the Apostle Paul. Here's another possibility of what could cause there to be such a radical change in a person's personality. Maybe the allure of gain could explain a sudden shift. So let's think of it like this. If being a Jew was hard in the first century and becoming a Christian could lead to a life of ease or pleasure or more comfort, then you could understand, well, maybe he made this sudden change out of personal gain. Like if, if you're being persecuted at one level and all of a sudden a 
change, a shift could allow you to be less persecuted, to allow you to have pleasure instead of pain. It's easy to understand how somebody could take such a dramatic step. But history would tell us otherwise when it came to the Apostle Paul. He went from a guy of privilege to poverty. He went from respect to disrespect, from a life of ease into a life of discomfort. So from that perspective alone, becoming a Christian would not have necessarily brought a lot of gain for him. Another one might have been that him being threatened could explain a major shift. People do different things if they're under duress. If somebody has threatened their life or threatened their family, then, then you might have somebody make a major change really fast. It, it seems out of character for them. But again, that doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, the Apostle Paul is kind of like the Rambo of the New Testament. This is a guy who I don't know if you could threaten him enough. I mean, he's been thrown in prison. He has been beaten with whips. He has been stoned. I, I mean, this is a guy who was a glutton for punishment. So my first question would be, what could somebody threaten him with that he's not already experienced? And on the other side, still remain passionate for Christ. So the idea of a threat to his life doesn't seem to be it. So if he's not insane... If he doesn't have a medical condition that we could diagnose, if he had nothing to necessarily gain physically about pleasure, if he wasn't threatened to act against his will, what could explain such a sudden and complete and core level shift in his life? There's at least one more plausible explanation. He's telling the truth. Now, if he's telling the truth, there should be enough evidence to go along behind that. So instead of us going through, as I said, and reading the entire text up front, I'm going to walk through, give a number of points. I'm going to share the corresponding text. And as we work through, I want you to ask yourself the question. Think of it like you're sitting on a jury. Ask yourself the question, does that point support his claim for divine revelation? Does that clue support what he's saying? Or do I get to the other side and I'm like, I'm not buying that? Now, the other side of that is this thought. There is greater certainty with the cumulative effect of mounting evidence. Here's what I mean. If one clue were given, doesn't mean much. Two clues, that's interesting. Three clues, you have my attention. Four clues, you have a case. Five clues, we're going beyond coincidence that is hard to ignore. So the greater certainty, it comes in the cumulative effect of mounting evidence. So that being said, here's this question. How does the text give us evidence to support his claims for divine revelation? Here's the first one thing I want you to see. Persecutors do not usually become advocates. Persecutors do not usually become advocates. Here's what the text says. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Now, if somebody grew up irreligious and they became religious, that is significant, but it is not anything that is necessarily out of the ordinary. It's not unusual. If somebody grew up Methodist and they became Baptist, that's still not anything unusual. That's like a Tuesday in spiritual life. It, it happens all the time. There's a lot of similarities between the two denominations. If someone grew up a non-practicing Jew and they became a Christian, 
Now, that is unusual, but again, it is not going to leave people in amazement. But let's think for a moment. If Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, author of The God Delusion, the guy who has spent a career attacking God and attacking religion and attacking the Bible, if Richard Dawkins were to become a born-again Christian tomorrow, that's newsworthy. Why? Because it is such a sudden, major shift in the core level of who that person is. Uh, persecutors do not usually become advocates. Those types of fundamental, core-level, life-altering changes, they don't happen that often, but it happened to the Apostle Paul. He moved from hating Christians to being a Christian. He moved from attacking the believers in the early church to becoming the primary advocate, primary leader, missional strategist, spokesperson, church planter, Christian author, as well as all-around problem solver for believers. That is a massive shift that is happening in his life. Now listen to the part of the original language. This word persecute that he uses, it is in the imperfect tense. It emphasizes a persistent and a continual intent to harm. He didn't just get upset once or twice. He was continually trying to harm believers, persistently trying to harm believers. He uses the word destroy. It was the word used of a soldier as they're ravaging a city. And that word is also in the imperfect tense. That is an ongoing action that he is performing. Paul was persistent in his effort to destroy Christianity, to destroy followers of Jesus Christ. So let's just kind of put some of those pieces together. Immediately after Stephen, the first martyr that's found in the New Testament, immediately after he died, Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says, Saul, speaking of the same guy here, who's now the Apostle Paul, began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Sounds like he's upset with believers. Just before his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, it says, that the Apostle Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way or any who were followers of Christ, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's happening on his way just before he meets Jesus. He is still breathing threats of murder. This is a guy who is still ravaging people house to house. Now let's add a little bit more around here. Some people can be laid back in their beliefs. You might have met some of those in your life. They're just chill. They're good. They don't get overly emotional one way or the other. They're, they're calm. You can talk to them peacefully about what they believe. There's other people who get pretty passionate about their beliefs usually around election time. <laughs> or if they believe that their beliefs are somehow threatened, they become passionate, they become more vocal. Then there's people who I just like to say, that they just live hot. I mean, they just, they just walk around just ready to argue with somebody over their beliefs. And, I mean, it's, it's the type of person they will argue at the drop of a hat, and they'll supply the hats. They're, they're just, they're ready. 
It, those are usually the ones who wind up in apologetics somewhere. They show up on college campuses. They get a chance to argue for a living. That's, that's another group. But listen, you have all of those levels, and then you have the Apostle Paul's level. It wasn't enough for him to just have his own beliefs. It wasn't enough for him to be occasionally passionate. It wasn't even enough for him to regularly argue. He could not rest until all threats to his beliefs were eliminated. Here's my point. Persecutors do not usually become advocates. And the Apostle Paul did. Here's the next piece of evidence. Practicing Jews do not usually take a different spiritual path. You can find this in verse 14. He says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul was advancing in Judaism. That, that word advancing, it means to chop ahead, to blaze a trail. This is a guy who was leading the pack. This is a guy who was removing obstacles that were in the way of Judaism. This is a passionate guy who was following the, the ideas, the dictates of his faith. This phrase, ancestral traditions, it refers to the oral teachings or, or to the Torah interpretations, which later on down the road became almost synonymous, on the same level with the word of God itself. Now, over time, those oral traditions, they were handed down from one to the next to the next. And, and as we see this developing in Judaism, I'm going to give you a couple more pieces about Paul's life, about how he grew up so that you can see this is a guy who made a major shift. Uh, one of those would be Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It describes Paul as a Jew of the first order. He says he was circumcised of the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is from the law, found blameless. Acts chapter 22, it tells us that Paul was educated by Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, this is important. Let's put all the information together. Paul was not on the fringe of Judaism he was blazing the trail for others. He didn't receive a second-rate education that led to a misunderstanding about Torah. In fact, he was trained by the top rabbi of that time. He wasn't upset with his faith or even looking for another faith because it was on the road to Damascus that he was going to persecute others. He wasn't talking about a change. This is a man who's completely okay with what he believed. And he also was in a synagogue dropout, just trying to find his way. He was a top-tier, zealous, passionate, competent leader in Judaism. Now, why is that significant? There is something unique about Judaism that is different than any other major world religion. And that is being Jewish is not simply identifying with a set of spiritual beliefs. Being Jewish is an ethnic identification. So when we're seeing a turn, it is a major thing that's happening in his life. Now, what I'm about to read is from the 1948 edition of the Jewish Encyclopedia, volume six, if you care to pick up a copy for yourself. 
it describes the striking dis- difference between Judaism and other world religions. And, and I want you to remember, again, this is written in 1948, but there are some parallel pieces that are huge. Here's what it says. The very name Judaism sharply differentiates it from other religions, whereas Buddhism centers on Buddha, Christianity on Christ, Mohammedism on Muhammad, that is before, you know, it's referred to as Islam. Judaism centers on no particular personality, but in the Jewish people themselves. While Christianity is based upon the events of the life of Christ, Judaism is based on occurrences in the history of the Jews. End of quote. Here's my point. Being Jewish is not simply identifying with a set of spiritual beliefs. Being Jewish is also about ethnic identification. You are born Jewish. For those of us who are Christians, you might be born into a Christian family, but you're not born Christian. That is a moment of repentance by placing faith in what Jesus has done for you. But in Judaism, it is different. You enter into the culture and the customs and the celebrations and the community of faith. I was surprised on one of my last trips to Israel to find out that the vast majority of Jewish people living in Israel are atheists. Let that sink in for just a moment. I actually had an opportunity. I went with a group of pastors and a group of rabbis, and I got a chance to ask the rabbis, help me understand what this is. I mean, you do not find more devoted people to their faith than what you see as Jews living in Israel. And he said, as best we can tell, the major shift happened at the Holocaust. It was the idea that they, they could not wrap their mind around how if there is a God and the Jewish people are God's chosen people, that he would have allowed the Holocaust to happen. And as a result of that, many have now said, we don't believe in a God. But listen, even though many now do not believe in God, they did not stop being Jewish. They're still pursuing it because there is an ancestral tradition. There is a connection of heritage. So for a Jewish person to shift gears for a Jewish person to come out of Judaism. It's more than just saying, I changed my beliefs. For a Jewish person to do that, it is the essence of saying, I am turning my back on my family and the traditions that have followed me. That's massive. Here's why I bring it up. In this section, you find the Apostle Paul is a guy who was passionate in being a Jew. He was advancing beyond many of his contemporaries. So if a non-practicing, atheistic Jew rarely takes a different path, if a practicing, theistically-minded Jew rarely takes a different path, how rare would it be for a strong, growing, zealous, pharisaical Jew to take a different path? It's virtually unheard of. But that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. Our first piece of evidence is persecutors do not usually become advocates. Our second piece from his story is practicing Jews do not usually take a different spiritual path. Now again, allow the pieces to begin to work together. There's greater certainty in the cumulative effect of mounting evidence. So here's the next piece, and this is where we're going to end things tonight. Here's the next piece of evidence. 
doers do not usually boast in their inabilities. This is in verses 15 and 16. He said, but when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Paul was a doer. His reputation as a persecutor of the church was known far and wide based on Acts chapter 9, verses 13 through 14. He did not sit on the sidelines and wish something else would change. He got in the game. He, he did what he thought was right. Philippians chapter 3, it tells us that he was a Pharisee of the strictest sect. Pharisees prided themselves in their ability to do, to keep the law of God. It was in doing things and observing the festivals of keeping the law, of avoiding sin, of remaining kosher. It was in doing all of those things that they prided themselves and others looked at them with respect because they said, that person is holy. That person is doing things right and they're doing things well. The apostle Paul was a doer. Doers do not usually boast in their inabilities. And yet, when the Apostle Paul describes his conversion, everything he says is about God doing for him. So think of it like this. I believe these are in your notes. God saved Paul by revealing Christ. It said, it pleased God to reveal his son to me. Paul did not figure God out. Paul did not wake up one day and through intellectual prowess and study figure out who God was. He, he tells us in the text that it pleased God to reveal his son to me. Whenever the apostle Paul writes about his conversion, he is always emphasizing that it is God who is acting on his behalf. As Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, salvation is of the Lord. Here's the second piece that we see there. God saved Paul by his grace. It tells us in the text, but when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Uh, Paul's experience, it correlates with some other giants of the faith, people like Isaiah in chapter 49, Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. All of those were set apart while still in their mother's womb. And he says the same thing that's happening here. Now note that he did not call Paul based upon Paul's righteousness. He did not call Paul based on his works. He did not call Paul based on anything that he could do. He was called by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor where he does in us and through us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, let me pause here. At this point, I'm sure that there's a number of people that are wondering, is Paul a Calvinist? Talking about this Paul, not the Apostle Paul. I don't know what he was. Okay, because I talk a lot about a sovereign God. I talk a lot about the fact that it has to be God who is doing the work. So some people might be wondering, like, is Paul a Calvinist? Here's what I tell people. I make Calvinists mad, and I make Armenians mad. Here's what I would refer to myself as. I'm a biblical literist. And that is, I want to go into the Word of God and teach Scripture as contextually accurate as I possibly can. So when it says, no one can come unless the Father draws him, 
I'm going to preach. No one can come unless the Father draws him. When Scripture says, repent and be baptized, I'm going to say, repent and be baptized. At the end of the day, my goal is not to shoehorn Scripture into a man-made paradigm. My goal is simply to preach Scripture and let Scripture fall where it will. Now, a lot of times people are like, but you can't be on both sides. Actually, you can. And here's the reason for that. The Bible is filled with what's referred to as antinomies. That is two equal truths that are in the Word of God that seem to contradict each other but are both true because God said they were true. Here, here's a great example of that. If you go back in the Old Testament, it'll talk about the Spirit of God entered into a city. Now let's stop for just a moment. If God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time. How could God enter into a place he's already at? That's biblical antinomy. There's a part in which there's the sovereignty of God that is so clear when it comes to our salvation. We are drawn by his spirit. He calls us to himself. Unless he opens our mind, we're not going to understand the gospel. But at the end of the day, he still says, repent, believe, trust. There's a part of human responsibility that goes along with that. Now, I bring that up to try to ease some tension for them, some who are saying, man, I don't know where he's at on this. It's okay. We're just going to preach scripture and let scripture explain itself. All right, so here's why I bring all of that back up. It says in the text that God is the one who has done the saving. He saved Paul by his grace. Now, next one, God saved Paul through the work of Christ, verses 15 and 16. But when God, here it is, was pleased to reveal his son in me, not his law in me, not my responsibilities to him, not his son in me. In Philippians 3, Paul clearly shares that, that he had plenty to boast about in his religious activities prior to Christ. But he says, all of those things that I consider gain to me, I now consider loss in view of knowing Christ. Here's the next one. That is, God saved Paul for his glory, found in verse number 24. And it says, and they were glorifying God because of me. Salvation is for our good, and it is also for God's glory. As a Pharisee, the attention was often on Paul and those who were doing what he was doing. The more they did what was right and what was good, the more they were praised for what they were doing. But here's the thing, at the end of the day, the glory is not supposed to come back to us. The glory is supposed to go to God. So when you notice the way that Paul shares his story, that is, God saved Paul by revealing Christ. God saved Paul by his grace. God saved Paul through the work of Christ. And God saved Paul for his glory. So now if somebody comes and asks the Apostle Paul some questions like, Hey, Paul, how did you figure God out? I didn't. God revealed his son to me. Well, who did the work? I didn't do anything. Christ did the work. Hey, Paul, who did, who did this work in your life? How did you figure him out? He comes back and he would have to say, I didn't do it. It, it wasn't me. Well, where did the change come from? Because you're not the same person that you were last year. It all came from God. By the time his story is done, all the focus 
all the direction goes back to God. So here's the three pieces of evidence, three clues that we've now seen from part of his story. Persecutors do not usually become advocates. Practicing Jews do not usually take a different spiritual path. Doers do not usually boast in their inabilities. Did you notice every single time I said, do not usually, do not usually? It's because it can happen when God is the one moving things. It is the mounting evidence, the cumulative effect of evidence that we're looking at here. As a pastor and also a counselor for the last 22 years, I can testify that deep core level change happens a minimal amount of time apart from the gospel in a person's life. People can go through momentary change. People can put another discipline in their life, maybe for six months, maybe a year. But those deep core level changes, it's rare. When you see it, it's incredible. And in this case, that core level change was so powerful, so big, it moved Saul of Tarsus to become Paul the Apostle, the persecutor to now become the preacher of the gospel. If it's just one or two changes, we could ignore them. But there's more that you'll continue to hear in the weeks ahead. So here's how we conclude things tonight. Based on what I've shared, is there any point of application that a believer could walk away with out of this message? The answer is yes. Let me give you two. Think about the message as a lesson in critical thinking. Did you know you don't have to check your brain at the door when you become a Christian? It's okay to use the brain that God put in your head. It's okay to ask deeper questions, to probe the scripture and say, God, lead me to truth. It's okay for that to happen. The same principles of logic and reason and evidence discernment that you use in other parts of your life, apply them into the word of God. God's word can handle any amount of scrutiny that we might want to bring towards it. Here's the second piece. Consider the reach of the gospel. There are some who would say, God could never forgive me for everything that I have done. And they would say, I can't be changed. There's others who would say, I've been a good person, therefore I don't need to be saved. I'm already okay with God. Did you know the Apostle Paul would fit into both camps? Think about that. This is the guy who persecuted believers, put him in prison, even to the point of death. If there's ever somebody who would say, I've done too much wrong, too much bad for God to save me, it could be the Apostle Paul. And on the other side of this, he's the same guy who said, as to righteousness which is found in the law, I was blameless. This is a guy who was moral. He was religious. He was a, quote, good person, if you want to put it there. Here's the point that I'm trying to bring up. No one is so bad that they cannot be saved, and no one is so good that they do not need to be saved. The Apostle Paul fits both categories here. So here's my question for you. When you study the Word of God, when you look at your life, how does your life give evidence for the transformation of the gospel? If somebody were to be looking at your life 2,000 years from now, and they're probing through and they're saying, 
how do I know if this person was truly a follower of Jesus Christ? What evidence would you be leaving behind? What would people be able to look at and say, here's major change that happened. That doesn't take place by chance. Ask God to help you to see that in your life. And also ask God, how do you want me to live my life fully, openly, faithfully, and out of conviction for those that are around me? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we've been in a text that is dealing with a part of the Apostle Paul's story, God, I recognize that there's parts in here that might seem to be in some ways more theoretical. It might be something that is seen on a level of being scholarly, like maybe we don't need to go that deep. But God, I pray that, that we would begin to take the pieces apart and to begin to understand them fully. There's a part of us marveling at the story of the Apostle Paul when we recognize how radical of conversion his really was. So God, I pray that you would help us to have a desire to not only see major change happen in us, but God, to be able to be used of you so that others might come to know you. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we can worship, we can study, we can be together in the word. And God, we're grateful for the community of faith that you have provided here. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. I hope you have a wonderful week ahead.